This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Katie. Anything. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I am Katie Morton. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, and I'm your host today, as every day. Today, we have eight questions and a lot about uh, self-injury and anxiety and all sorts of good stuff. If you are looking to get your questions answered, let's say you've been asking week after week, know that every month over on my Patreon page at the $20 tier and above, I answer your questions every month in a live stream. We hang out for about three hours, get through usually around 25 to 30 questions. It's a really good time. So if you're looking for that, go to patreon.com forward slash Katie Morton or click the link in the description. Also, if you just want to participate in the live stream, the tier benefits start at just $1. So there's also a Discord, extra videos, all that jazz. Without further ado, let's jump to this first question. Now, question number one says, hey, Katie, can you explain why self-harm, in my case, cutting, results in me feeling really calm? I suffer from depression and anxiety, and even thinking about doing it calms me down. Thanks for all that you do. Now, there are a lot of add-ons to this. So I'm going to read through them all because the answer is going to be very similar for all, okay? The next person says, why does self-harm make me feel less distressed when I'm having a meltdown? But when I'm out of crisis, it makes me feel sad, scared, angry, and traumatized. Traumatized. I suffer from BPD and an eating disorder, and I've self-harmed for basically my entire life, okay? Another person says, in addition, why would self-harm make me feel better when the pain of it afterwards hurts so bad. I have complex PTSD and depression. I've been self-harming for about four years now, and it's gotten worse with therapy. I'm now, or I now self-harm while dissociated and unknowingly do it. I mentioned it in session and my therapist was like, well, you need to stop because I don't think it's okay to do it unknowingly. I said, what? That's not helpful. I've self-harmed even in a class of mine before. And I told her she was upset and angry. What? And that I didn't tell my teacher. I'm going to school to be a counselor. I was so confused. I've even had bad enough nightmares where I wake up and find a fresh cut. Last week, I started to dissociate and I mentioned I was having self-harm thoughts in session. It was overwhelming at first. Then just thinking about them made me calm down until she asked me about the trigger again. Why does it calm me down when I think of self-harm? What should I do about my therapist's thoughts about my self-harm? Okay, now there's a couple more, but let's just jump into this. Now, there are a couple reasons that self-injury This could be cutting, burning, hitting, or there's a ton of different ways we can self-injure ourselves, okay? The reason that it can make us feel good are for a couple of key, what I would say like neurological reasons. Number one is that when we're injured in general, our body dumps a bunch of like cortisol, adrenaline, and other types of, I think we'd call those hormones technically, but you could call them, you know, 
uh, neurotransmitters in some cases. I'm sure there's like maybe, I don't know if it flushes us with dopamine, but I know that it, our body readies us to take action because it feels like it's under threat. So we go into like a fight, flight, freeze response. Cortisol, adrenaline, they dump and they help us maybe not feel the pain initially so that we can get out of the dangerous situation. Does that make sense? It's kind of like the way that our body is wired so that we are okay and we can make it through and we won't be, you know, I don't know, killed or taken hostage or whatever could possibly happen by us being able to get out of that situation and not feel the pain initially. We kind of go into shock even too. You've heard of that happening, I'm sure, with people where they don't feel anything at the beginning, um, our body is just doing its best to try to cope with what's happening. Okay, so there's that. And that's kind of just like a knee-jerk automatic neurological response. Now, on the flip side, I was reading an article um, from a researcher, and it was in Smithsonian Magazine. I'll put the link in the description if you want to read through it. But it was done, um, the NHS had done some research as well. Essentially, what I found, and I'd known this, but I couldn't remember the parts of the brain but essentially when it comes to sensing physical and emotional pain, right? So the the physical sensation of like, oh, I scratched my knee or I cut myself, whatever. That is shared. It shares the same parts of our brain as emotional pain. Pain is pain in our body, in our brain. They treat it almost the same way. And so it uses these two areas. It's called the anterior insula, which is like a small patch of our brain that's part of the cerebral cortex behind our ears. And the anterior cingulate cortex which is like a hook-shaped piece of brain towards the front of our brain, okay? Now, these are the areas of the brain that process pain. And it doesn't matter whether it is the, uh, you know, the burning of our skin or us feeling um, emotional sting from someone like dumping us, let's say. It doesn't really matter. And so there was a 2010 study in psychological science that revealed that the pain relievers, this is how they figured this out, is that pain relievers such as Tylenol or paracetamol, which is acetaminophen, helped relieve distress associated with social rejection as well as regular pain, right? We take Tylenol for like a headache or um, my elbow, I whacked it, it hurts. It not only helps us feel better from physical pain, but also emotional pain. And so that obviously that is, we're not in, but in no way possible am I recommending that we take Tylenol as a way to deal with depression or rejection or any of those things. But it's just important to know that our brain processes it the same way. And so that's why sometimes we can feel kind of calm. Our brain and body are working to manage it in the same way it manages physical pain, like that going into shock or going into that fight flight. And so I think sometimes we try to trigger that response. If the emotional pain isn't, um, doesn't feel valid, It doesn't. So now I'm moving into other options. Okay. So I just found that very fascinating, but I think our brain dumps stuff to help us deal with any kind of pain that we're experiencing physical or emotional. In this case, we're kind of hitting both. Right. And I've heard from a lot of my patients that the self-injury helps express what we're feeling emotionally. It helps express it physically. So in some ways, when we want to minimize the emotional distress, like, oh, this happened and it's not that big of a deal or like whatever, then when we harm ourselves, when we use self-injury, we're like, no, look, I actually hurt. Okay. So that can be part of it as well. Why it can be soothing and feel good. 
I also know that for many of my patients who especially were neglected in childhood, for whatever reason, the parent maybe worked away from home a lot, maybe the parent was having their own mental illness or addiction struggles, so they weren't really present, or maybe they were abusive, whatever the case, um, a lot of my patients have found kind of a self-soothing in the ritual of taking care of the wound, almost as if we are finally mothering or fathering our younger self. It's almost like we're doing the thing for ourselves and our wound that we wished our parents had done when we were younger versus them just like ignoring us, not being there or telling us to take care of it ourselves, right? And so there can be some of that in it too and why that can be so soothing, okay? So there's a lot of different reasons why it feels good. Now, some people ask like why it feels worse later. And I think that's because that those the dumping of the adrenaline, the cortisol, or the the way that our body and brain are processing the pain, it goes away and we're left with that pain. And it it's such a short-lived whoop, spike for that like dump of like the cortisol, the adrenaline, the things that we do and we're, um, our body feels like it's under threat and we've been injured. It's a short-lived sensation in order to get us to safety. So it doesn't last for, in, in my experience with my patients, you can correct me if I'm wrong in those comments down below, but my patients have always told me that the, the quote-unquote good feeling at most, this is at most, lasts for like 12 hours. Usually it's like this very short-lived, and honestly, I'd even venture to hypothesize that the this like good euphoric or calming feeling only lasts for a few hours, like three, four, because by then we kind of go into the lull of maybe feeling worse. And there's like shame associated with the fact that we self-injured and there can be a lot of that stuff, the guilt and the like response that I call it like almost like a trauma response, right? We can feel that. And then it starts to build again toward getting us to self-injure again. Does that make sense? I hope so. Okay. So that's why we feel, oh, it feels so much better. No, it doesn't. And that's pretty much the life, like not the lifespan, but almost like the half-life of any kind of unhealthy coping skills. It's very, very short-lived. If we binge or restrict as a way, we get that hit of it of like, oh, okay, that feels better. And then we feel like shit and there's guilt and shame and whatever. And then it builds again toward getting us to do it again. And that's why we get caught in this cycle because we end up feeling bad again because it's not actually a good, uh, healthy way to cope. It doesn't actually help us process anything. That's like addiction, right? If we're addicted to gambling, we get that hit. Whoo, that dopamine hit when we put in that bid or there, that um, whatever it's called, you guys, you place that bet. I clearly don't gamble. Um, you get that hit and then you have to do it again and do it again and do it again. And especially if it's an addiction, we have to do more and more and more because there's tolerance. We don't get that same feeling every time. So to do more and more and more to get that feeling. And that can be the same with self-injury. I've had patients tell me that they have to self-harm more and more um, in order to get that same relief. And so just be aware, it's actually not helpful for us and it doesn't end up making anything better, even though sometimes in the moment it can feel like it's it's all that will make it, you know, go away. It's just very short-lived. Okay. It says, in addition, why would self-harm make me feel better when the pain of it afterwards hurts so bad? I have complex PTSD and depression. I've been self-harming for about four years now and it's gotten worse in therapy. She And so this is when they were telling her like, she's doing it unknowingly and you're supposed to stop. I really don't understand. So last week I dissociated. I mentioned I was having self-harm thoughts in session. It was overwhelming at first. Um, 
and then thinking about it made me calm down. Okay, so this question I wanted to dig into a little bit before we get into the next atom, because it's very common that we do it unknowingly because of the dissociation factor, the fact that it's a trauma response. A lot of times we're doing self-injurious behavior as a way to cope with the pain that we're feeling, right? We think that making it look like real pain, like an actual wound, gives it more validity. We can also be seeking that dopamine cortisol, the good feels that are dumped, the um, that kind of like adrenaline pah, to get us to safety. We're craving that better feeling, that kind of uh, motivation, or especially if we have depression, you know, we can want that kind of oomph to get us going. That can feel really good. So there can be a lot of reasons that it can be attached to our trauma. And that's why you're doing it in dissociative states, because I would assume you're probably feeling overwhelmed and disorganized, dysregulated. And when we get into that dysregulated phase, we dissociate and then we self-injure because we feel so scattered and overwhelmed. And it can be grounding, right? I didn't even talk about that. How Self-injury can also be a grounding experience. And I'm not sharing all of these reasons we can do self-injury to tell you, hey, it's helpful. It really isn't. But in that moment, in that very thin moment, remember just a couple of hours, it seems like the only option. But then know that it's just going to, we're going to feel better and then way worse. And then it's going to build again until we have to do it again. And it usually builds where we have to do it more and more, like more with more frequency. Okay. Um, another add-on says, I haven't self-harmed in a good while as my eating disorder is in control at the moment. But when it's not working for me, I get overwhelmed, mainly with thoughts and emotions that I will punch a wall and it brings me right back down into calmness and everything is still and quiet for a good few moments. See, again, good few moments. I go into a daze-like state. I know I shouldn't, but I crave that feeling. I can imagine it's just a way of grounding myself, but in an obvious unhealthy, an obviously unhealthy way. Are there any other ways of grounding that can give similar results? I'm a sensory seeker. Things like breath work doesn't work for me. I'm about to start EMDR for a range of past events, mainly childhood sexual abuse, and I'm struggling to find things that ground me well enough. Appreciate all you do. Thanks. If you need sensory, if you need more, uh, stomping your feet, shaking your body out, holding cold ice in your hands, or splashing cold water on your face, changing your temperature, that's where I would go for that. Because I think you're going to need that feel. Because that's why the punching and it is self-injurious behavior and it doesn't last very long. It's a super short-lived. We're going to need something to replace that. And I want you to know that these things that I'm telling you, this body shake, the cold water, it can be grounding. It might not be as intense as that, but know that the longevity, the the grounding feeling will last for a longer period of time because it's not something that is actually making it worse. Does that make sense? Because the reason that's so calm for those few moments, again, is because of your brain and body, the way that it's like processing that pain and what happens and what gets dumped into our nervous system when we hurt ourselves. But instead, we're just going to kind of shake it out. We're going to trigger a release in a healthy way that's not damaging. So give those things a try. And I really think that that will help because I would assume counting colors and those types of things might not work either. We need something we can feel. Um, and I don't know if you've tried like thinking putty, silly putty or fidget toys, but those can help sometimes in session when we're talking about things. Also, I have patients who like like to pull on fabric or blanket or something, or you can always just get up and stomp your feet, tell your therapist, hey, this helps me sometimes when I start to feel the tension building. We can do that so we don't have to, you know, punch a wall or get really, you know, so that we feel that pain and like essentially are harming ourselves. 
Okay. And it's also common, I want to mention that our eating disorder and self-injury can kind of toggle back and forth on like a teeter-totter or they can happen at the same time. Um, everybody's different, but because they're both coping skills, they're both ways of dealing with emotional upset and intensity, right? If we're feeling very dysregulated, they can kind of help in a short-term way um, ground us and or help us feel even though we're really numbing out. It's just another way to cope. And that's why they can kind of toggle and one will be happening, the other one happening and vice versa. Okay. Now, um, this other person said, I also, as an add-on, in my experience, self-harm is used as a way to come out of dissociation or end flashbacks. But is it possible that it also works the other way around? Yes. Can it intensify the dissociation? Yes, it can. Because depending on the triggering situation or certain negative feelings, I feel like I get carried away with the self-harm, doing it repeatedly for more severe pain. The pain seems to thrive or um, drive, I'd assume is what they meant, drive me deeper into the state of being numbed out. And more importantly, how do I pull myself out? Strong skills like using a rubber band or ice pack tend to have a similar effect and grounding techniques like counting colors or finding objects in the room, starting with an A and so on. They aren't helpful to my self-harm urges. Thanks for all you do. Um... We're going to have to get creative. The um... If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The rubber band and the ice pack, you said, tend to have a similar effect. Let's stick with those. Let's stick with temperature change. Isn't I don't talk about it enough, maybe, but it's one of the most powerful grounding techniques. That's like cold water in your face. Uh, a really maybe have some wet rags that you have frozen in your freezer, in a Ziploc or whatever, like roll up a little washcloth, fold them in half, get them wet, put them in Ziplocs and freeze them, pull one out and lay it on your neck. Um, having those kind of at the ready can be incredibly grounding. Now, I know you won't have access to those unless you're at home, but splashing cold water in your face in a bathroom is always available. Um, the changing temperature is so helpful. Cold, not to hot, by the way, hot doesn't work. Um, cold showers. If you can step in a cold shower, I know that's again, like a thing at home or maybe the gym that would be available, but let's stick with those things that work for you. I used to have a patient of mine that would keep, um, rubber bands or, uh, even bracelets that were kind of uh, stretchy that she could kind of snap like that. And that could help. I know there's mixed thoughts about it, but I've like, I always tell my patients, as long as we're not injuring ourselves in the most intense way. If we're taking it down a few notches, I'm okay with it. We're moving in the right direction. Again, we can't just like stop doing something. The urges will get incredibly strong. So I don't want us to feel like it's like all or nothing. We can slowly wean our way out of it. And I also do want to mention, because I feel like it needs to be said here. When we talk about self-injury, if you have a wound that a band-aid or any steri strips or whatever you're putting on it, it, it's not healing. Please, please go to the doctor 
cellulitis infections, um, toxic shock syndrome, which is a blood infection. Getting, we're so sensitive to that when we self-injure. Please get your wounds treated if they look at all red around the edges, like they're inflamed and infected. It's not worth us having, you know, bigger and more dangerous issues come about. Okay, please reach out. Please go get some help. Get them cleaned up, stitched up, whatever you need to take care of it. Okay. Now, um, the final add-on says, Katie, have you ever heard of anyone purposely getting badly sunburned as a way of self-harm? I haven't, but I'll tell you what I have heard of. Is it considered self-harm? I think I did it because it was sneaky. No one questioned it. I was grieving at the time. I'd lost my pet horse, my only safe and consistent companion. I'm so sorry for your loss. I have had patients purposely not take care of things on their body in general as a form of self-injury. This could be like not going to the doctor, even though we have a wound that's infected, or we have this weird kind of like, uh, I even had a patient, I swear, had like a broken bone in her hand and she would not go get it checked out. It took us forever to get her to a place where she had to go get it checked out. And it was, it was one of those small bones. So there wasn't a ton they could do for her. Um, but yes, this kind of like, um, self-injury through neglect. That's what I would call that. And you said it's sneaky. It's like a way to get away with it. So I don't think so much on what the behavior is specifically. I think more on what we get out of it. Because if you feel like that was a way of you to harm yourself and that harming um, maybe was like your anger in, maybe it was a way of expressing the pain you felt emotionally, like you said, you were grieving at the time. I think that to me proves that it was self-harm for you. And so instead of us judging what kind of behaviors we're doing that we call self-injury, instead, I'm more interested in like the motivation behind it and what it gives us. That's what makes it self-injurious behavior, right? Think of just that term if we were to define it. If we didn't know anything about self-injury and I said, oh, this person's engaging in self-injurious behavior, it could be argued. There's a lot of ways that we can do that, right? You could say someone exercising with a sprained ankle or really, really sick we could call it exercise addiction or part of an eating disorder. We could call it, also call it self-injurious behavior, right? There's tons of ways we can see um, us using injurious behaviors towards ourselves as a way to cope. And that is obviously one of them for you. So just because I haven't treated it doesn't mean it doesn't exist or that what you're going through, you know, wasn't self-injurious behavior because I think it was. I hope that was clear and makes sense. I can talk about self-injury if you guys don't know that I specialized in that in my practice, eating disorders and self-injury work was like 80% of what I saw. Um, so yeah, happy to always dig into that. But let's move on to question number two. This question says, Katie, will my anxiety ever really go away? I've learned to push through so much of my anxiety using different coping skills that I learned in therapy, but my anxiety never really went away. I feel like my anxiety is still the same as it was when I started therapy two years ago, but I just learned how to better manage it. My therapist started spacing my sessions more and more and expressed that I'm doing well and thinks I might not need therapy for much longer. I still struggle with anxious thoughts, decision-making, and hidden anxiety attacks, but I use deep breathing and self-talk to get myself to go and do, to do and go places. I'm able to do everything, work, social events, etc., but it's so hard for me and causes me to be stressed and sometimes exhausted. My question is, will my anxiety ever actually go away? Or will I have to continue to fight it every day by using my coping skills? This is tricky to answer, but let me tell you all of what I know, okay? Now, if you're on medication, I would encourage you to talk to your doctor because it sounds like it's not really working. 
Now, therapy with medication gives us the best result. Do I feel like you have to be on medication? No, this is a decision that you get to make with your doctor and understanding all of the side effects, what it could mean for you, why you would take it, blah, 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 all that. But the fact that you have all these tools to better manage and you're able to do them is fucking amazing. High five to you, right? You've been working really hard and it's showing, okay? But the fact that your anxiety is still so difficult and it's like you're white knuckling your way through life. You're like, oh, you're trying so hard. You're, you're pushing so hard. You're doing all the work. That's to me, that's not really success. I have to disagree with your therapist when I think that you like don't need as much therapy or, you know, you are doing well, but like by the grace of God and like blood, sweat and tears. That's never my goal. My goal is for my patients to have uh, coping skills and things to manage it like you do, but it shouldn't take all of our energy to do that. We should get it to a place where most of the time, let's say 51% of the time, the symptoms are not as bothersome because we've figured out either where the anxiety is coming from, we're on medication for it, whatever, we've gotten stuff on board so that the symptoms aren't as intense. And then the ones that still exist, we're able to manage. Does that make sense? That's more my goal. Now, Will your anxiety ever really go away? I believe that going away 100% is probably a no, but just like all mental illnesses, it's going to be our like sensitivity. You know, I've talked in the past about when I was growing up, I had uh, my, I had like tonsil stones. My tonsils were so inflamed and infected all the time. And I got my tonsils out when I was like 20, which I know is very late, 21. Anyway, it was, it was terrible. I should have done it when I was a kid, but I was fine. So I had them all my life and had strep throat horrifically for a long period of time until they'd finally take them out. Now I say that because to this day, if someone around me has a cold and I start to feel kind of sick, it will go to my throat. That's like my weakest, you all the weakest link. Does anybody remember that show? It's very, very old, but it's a, my weakest link is my throat. It's my sensitivity. It's my soft spot. It's the place where my body tends to put its illness. And you can, you know, if anybody's into like Ayurvedic or woo-woo medicine, they're always like, oh, that's because, you know, um, you essentially like don't, I don't take good enough care of myself. So it stays in my throat. But anyway, let's not get into that. I say that because I'm going to get strep throat more quickly than other people who've never had it before. And you're going to have anxious symptoms way more quickly than someone who doesn't have anxiety like you do, right? And so this is going to be your sensitivity. Your anxiety is going to be the way, like when life gets stressful and when you're having a tough time, boom, you're going to have anxiety symptoms. That's how your body's going to try to manage. It comes out in anxiety, right? So it will go away, but when things get tough, you're going to feel that pull, into those anxious or the anxious thoughts will start swirling and you find them like I do. I find them coming up when I try to go to bed and I'm like, you fucking like, I know what they are. They come back, but most of the time they don't bother me. And that's really the goal. I want you to get to a place where most of the time it doesn't bother you. Yes, this is your weakness, but do you know, like to the strep throat example, do I get strep throat every day, all day, week after week? No. Should you have anxious symptoms every day, all day? no matter what? No, we should get you to a place where they're not as intensive. Now, I don't know if that means we dig into like where our anxiety comes from, if there has a root to it, if there's something like for me, it kind of comes out of, I believe, my difficulty with conflict, my need for people pleasing, because growing up, like my dad worked away from home 
And so him being in my life would be really inconsistent. He'd be gone for quite a few months at a time and then he'd be back and then he'd say, yeah, I'm going to be at your game. And then he'd get called back into work and he'd be gone. And that kind of, um, it is kind of, I guess you could call it neglect, but that inconsistency, it, I thought if I did everything just right, my dad would be able to show up on time and he'd be able to be there. Spoilers, I had nothing to do with it, but that's how I internalized it. And so I'm more, uh, I get really anxious thinking that if I act in a certain way, people will do the things I want. That's not helpful, right? I've worked in therapy years to try to mitigate that. And so my anxiety will come up when things start to get overwhelmed. I start to want to act in those same old ways. I want to get you to a place where we kind of recognize where it's coming from and we try to heal that. might be some inner child work, some of the stuff I did. It might be self-talk. It might be managing the other symptoms that feed your anxiety, but there's more to this. And I really would encourage you to dig in, potentially consider medication, even if it's for a short term, um, to try to find a way for you to have it be more managed because it can go away for the most part. But again, just like anything in life, we're going to have our kind of weaknesses or our sensitivities and yours is anxiety as is mine. Just like my strep throat, that's where my colds tend to land. Um, yeah, I hope that kind of makes sense. So it can go away, but you're still going to have to fight it a little bit at a time because it just happens to be the way that we manage upsets in life. I know it sucks, but I'm just only telling you the truth. Okay. Let's move on to question number three. This question says, hello, Katie. Hello. It says, after years of neglect as a child, I've never learned about physical touch. I don't remember being hugged and such. So now what seems intuitive for most people feels so confusing for me. I crave touch, but I am extremely shy about it and about using it. Like rubbing the back of an upset friend just feels so not natural. And I very often just freeze and look at them. I feel extremely awkward. How can you learn to be okay with touch as an adult? This is something I would work with uh, with your therapist on because as weird as this is going to sound, we're going to have to do some like role play touch stuff with our therapist. And I know that can be taken in a sexual manner. That's not how I mean it. I mean, having a therapist talk about these situations, you know, like rubbing the back of an upset friend, um, you can practice on your therapist, offering touch, talking about how it feels. What if I wanted to give you a hug? Would that be okay? Can we have a how? Okay. Explain to me what went through your head. We're going to have to dig into this. And really, there's nothing wrong with you. It's because you didn't experience it. So it's almost like not a part of your life. It could be part of your attachment. We could say I have a lot of patients with like, uh, anxious or avoidant or kind of disorganized attachment who will say that like touch is very uncomfortable. But for you, it's not that it's uncomfortable. It's almost just like confusing and foreign because it's like not in your culture. Do you know what I mean? And so it's not to say that we have to be very, very touchy, but it sounds like you want to be more comfortable with it. And so we're going to have to figure out kind of where it's coming from in our head, how we can practice it in a healthy way. Maybe with like a really close friend, we can talk about it and they can help us with it. Even like my girlfriend, Rocio is not very touchy. Um, she doesn't actually like to be touched too much. So like, if I'm going to hug her, I'm like, can I hug? And she's like, sure. Or no. And I respect that. And I think there's going to be some conversations that you'll want to have with those that you're closest with, because not everybody has to be super touchy feely, but I want you to feel good about where you're at with this. And it sounds like you're wanting a little bit more. And that's why therapy can be helpful. And there might be some inner child stuff, some healing that happens there, because you might actually really need the touch. We all are wired for touch, by the way. Um, 
But obviously within that, there's going to be a complete range of how much, what's okay, what's not okay. Like I grew up in a very touchy-feely family. So my family always hugs, touches, kisses you on the cheek, sometimes accidentally kisses you on the mouth. It's just, it's not done in a creepy way. It's just, you got to turn your head or they'll hit you. Um, yeah, so I'm used to that. And so I I crave more touch probably than most people because I'm used to it. You're not used to it. So you don't really crave that. And it seems very foreign. So let's let's figure it out, figure out the root of it a little bit more see if there's anything, any work that needs to be done in that healing process, and then practice with our therapist and possibly, hopefully a close friend so that we can get more comfortable with it and gauge how much we maybe need because we might not even know. We might be surprised how much we need. Okay. Now there's a comment on this. It said, as an add-on last week, my therapist and I were talking about asking for help with needs. She gave the example of asking for a hug from her partner. Mm -hmm. The whole idea of a hug being in need struck me as odd. She showed me Maslow's ideas. Okay. If anybody doesn't know what Maslow's is, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And I'm going to pull it up because I'm not going to remember off the top of my head. Um, That's a pyramid essentially. Here it is. Okay, perfect. So in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it it goes, there's like the basic, the foundation is like, do we have air, water, food, shelter, clothing, basic stuff? right? Then we, so they call them those physiological needs. Then we go into safety needs. So we need health, resources, employment, personal security. And the next one is love and belonging. And I assume that this is where your therapist was like kind of harping on it because in this one, there's friendship, intimacy, family, and sense of connection. And I've talked to you guys a lot about the importance of connection and how it's uh, part of polyvagal theory, meaning that it like stimulates our vagus nerve. It helps us feel soothed and energize simultaneously. And um, anyway, so that's really important to our overall neurological health, aka our mental health and physical health. Then we move up Maslow's to esteem is the next tier and it's respect, self-esteem, status, recognition, freedom, strength. And then the final and the very point to the top of Maslow's hierarchy is self-actualization. And this is the, the, the desire uh, to become the most that one can be. And they say, they, when I was learning about this in school, they'd say like, not everybody re- reaches self-actualization. But I do believe that in, because for years and years, most of us have lived in pretty safe, well taken care of areas of the world. Um, therefore, those other needs are met more quickly and more easily. And that's where a lot of us think like, oh, is my job fulfilling? Am I becoming the best person I can be? Right. But for those of us who've been kind of stuck in like a, a trauma response, we might not have the bandwidth to even consider that right now. Right. And so you can kind of see how those affect us. And I think that's why your therapist showed you that because it is part of the way that we're created, wired, however you want to explain it. It's like our nervous system needs that connection, hence that needing to be hugged and needing to feel cared for. So anyways, says the whole idea of a hug being a need struck me as odd. And even if I could go along with that idea that physical touch is a need apart from human infancy, infancy development, I don't know if I could ever ask for this. It seems so clingy and needy. Here's the, where the therapist in me is like, I'm curious where you got that. We jumped a lot from needing a hug to being clingy and needy. says, and I feel really mucked up about it. My anxiety gets high just thinking about asking my husband for this sort of thing. What gives? My family wasn't super touchy-feely, but it also wasn't completely left out either. I do have a history of childhood sexual abuse, and we are working on that already, but I don't think hugs have anything to do with that. Okay, 
We're going to ha- you're going to have to be a detective. We're going to do some internal research to find out why asking for a hug from someone that you love is clingy and needy. Be curious. And something that I've been finding helpful personally in my own journaling is to ask questions of myself in journal form. So as I'm writing, I'm like, where do I think this is coming from? You'll be surprised where your brain takes you. You're like, maybe, okay, so the clinging, you're like, maybe it's from childhood sexual abuse. I don't really think so. That doesn't seem to be a part of that. Hmm. Maybe did I hear this from one of my parents or a family member that I was too clingy or too needy? Did I see someone else receive that message in my family? Hmm. Be curious. It's okay to pose questions, even if we don't have the full answer. Ask yourself, you know, where is this coming from? Why do I associate asking for physical touch, asking for love, support, care? Why do I associate that and connect that to being clingy or needy? And it's just, why does it do that? Let's figure it out. There's a reason in there, some kind of message you've received or something you've internalized and decided, you know, accepted as part of who you are or the way you define yourself or the situation. I don't know. There's something in there and we have to be curious, not judgmental about it so we can figure it out because that's what makes humans. That's why I love what I do is because we're all so interesting. Everybody's different, right? Like I said, I grew up in a really touchy feely home. And so if I didn't, if I don't get enough hugs and touch, I don't feel connected. And that connection is very key for me. Now, connection come from a lot of different ways. We can talk about love languages. Uh, If you don't know about the love languages, there's physical touch is one of them, Uh, gifts, words of affirmation, um, quality time and uh, acts of service. And everybody's different in how they feel love. And yours probably is not physical touch, but I am suspicious about the clingy needy meaning. If you ask for something, you're clingy needy. That, to me, that doesn't quite track. And I'm very curious about that. But anyways, um, all that to say, we don't have to have a ton of physical touch, but it is part of being human. And there is a certain amount of need for it. And it can be very soothing. Um, so yeah. Okay. Enough rambling. I hope that gives you an idea of where to start. We have another comment on this says, I have a similar question. I wasn't emotionally neglected growing up, but I do remember always being uncomfortable with physical touch from my parents specifically. I'd either reject their hugs or just stand still like a statue, LOL. I've gotten better over the years, but it still feels unnatural for me to hug them. It's weird because I don't mind it and I even crave it from other friends and family. Hmm. How can I learn to feel okay with physical affection from my parents? Any any suspicions about why I'm like this? I have suspicions about the relationship. It's very, I mean, to me, okay, I could take this in a couple of directions. Number one, I'm very curious about your upbringing. And if, because you said you weren't emotionally neglected, but was there any physical abuse? And I know when I say physical abuse, people automatically assume a certain kind of thing happened, but were they, uh, were you ever scared of them? Like, did they ever get rage filled and you were like, I don't know what's going to happen with this? You know, um, did they ever like spank you a lot till you like was hurt and you cried? Do you ever feel like maybe that was a little out of control? I'm just asking these questions because sometimes I find we downplay things or repress things or make things into quote unquote, not as big of a deal because it seems normal at the time. And that's just how parents are. And that's what we think is what should be happening, even though it's not. Do you know what I'm saying? And so I want you to just consider that for a second. Think about it. Um, What went on? Because there's a reason it's weird that you are okay giving, like receiving it from some 
other people, but not your parents specifically. So I want to know what happened there. So that's one suspicion, some kind of abuse, sexual, physical, something. Um, and then my second suspicion is about attachment. So a lot of people, like I said, who have like a disorganized attachment or maybe like anxious avoidant, we can uh, want and crave it. But then if it comes, we're like, no, I don't know what to do with it. Ugh, right. And we can have that kind of difficulty. And that, again, stems from our childhood and our parents not really being available, um, not being consistent could be neglect, things like that. It sounds like you don't think that that's where it's coming from, but I'm just posing these questions for you to kind of think about it and consider because those are kind of the two areas, the two suspicions I have about it. Um, And then the third, I guess my last and final would be that I'm curious about the ways that your parents interact with other people. Are your parents very touchy-feely? Were there mixed messages around that? Did they ever take advantage of that, like um, bringing you close to then I don't know. It sounds silly, but I'm like thinking of like our dog, Roxy, how we'll like give her a treat and then we'll be like, oh, clip a toenail. Do you know what I mean? And that kind of behavior with children can make it so that that physical touch with a parent doesn't feel safe. It doesn't feel okay because they use that to get something from us or to have us do something we don't want to do. Is there any of that? So yeah, just just being curious about how your parents interact with other people, how touchy-feely they are with other people in your life, um, messages maybe they've said or ways that they interacted with you that maybe you felt a little scared. And just do your best to be curious, not judgmental, meaning I don't need you judging yourself saying like, oh, you're making this into a bigger deal than it was. This really wasn't, you know, we're just going to, we're just trying to gather some information. We're not making any judgments yet. We're just trying to figure out what took place. But in there somewhere, I think, is our answer as to why this is happening. Okay. Um, Another add-on says, how do you let other people know that you don't like being hugged? Great question. I was never really hugged as a child. So when I'm hugged now, even from family or friends, I want to push it away or avoid the hug. I usually force myself to accept the hug because I don't want to offend others, but I feel my whole body tense up during this moment. Okay. Um, My girlfriend, Rocio, just told me straight up, and I think that's our best bet not in the moment when it's going to happen, but in like a ba- very basic casual conversation with with your family and friends, you can just say, you know, I was never really hugged as a kid. I find hugs really difficult. I actually don't enjoy them, you know, and we can say it kind of like, I know, I know. And then if it's a close friend or family, we can say, you know, so maybe maybe we don't hug every time we say each other, each other. I know that's hard, but like, I'm just not used to it. And we just kind of, we talk about it honestly, but in a very casual way so that they understand. And if we've told that person about it, then when they come to hug us, we can say, oh, can we not? I love you, but I can't. And they will slowly understand. Because with Rocio, I have to be honest, I still try to hug her sometimes just like autopilot because I'm that person. And she knows that about me. And I've talked to her. I'm like, I'm trying. I'm like, just just walk, just like step back from me. I won't be offended. Um, and I'm not because I know it has nothing to do with me. And so I think a big part of that is just communicating that with her or with your friends and family with her. I'm talking like in my own personal experience but communicate that to them so that then they know and then there's no offense taken, okay? Now, the final one says, this is me too. This is undoubtedly undoubtedly part of a disorganized attachment style. Here we have it. Something that I identify with, but how can one work with this and heal? I also have the belief that I'm disgusting to others and me touching them would be the worst and so to be, and so to be respectful, I abstain from touch undoubtedly coming across as standoffish to them. I feel so torn, confused, and sad. I don't have any friends or close relationships, all in part 
the result of childhood emotional neglect and childhood sexual abuse. Okay, so there's two pieces to this. Now, this disorganized attachment style definitely plays a role in this. And the best way for us to manage that, mitigate it, overcome it is through inner child work. I know I have a workshop on my website, katiemorton.com. You can download it, access the videos. You can work on it now. Um, There's that. There's also books online in my Amazon shop. It's linked in all my descriptions, but amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash Katie Morton. I link out to books that I like for inner child work, some work workbooks and worksheets and things like that, um, things you can read to better understand. But in short, because it's attachment-based or that's what our suspicions are, right? It comes from childhood. We have to get in touch with childhood us. Maybe we look at some old videos or footage or photos of us at that age. Maybe we look at old letters or things from school that we wrote um, to remember what it was like to be that age. And we start to talk to ourselves, maybe write in some letters. Like, hey, younger Katie, um, I know things were hard and you didn't fully understand what was going on here, right? Right from adult you to child you. And then just consider, it might be a little too woo-woo, but we'll start out with this. Try considering what a child would say back. Do you remember what you felt back then? Do you remember what it was like? I even have a tough time being uh, conversational with like teen me. I'm like, what were you thinking? You're so stupid, right? We have all those judgments. I encourage you, hold on that pretend that that is your child. How do we talk to a younger person? How do we understand them, um, give them the space to feel seen and heard? Start trying to do that a little bit and see what you can get out of it. And in my inner child workshop, I offer a lot of ways to start this because I know that doesn't work for everybody. Um, but that is how we kind of heal and overcome that disorganized attachment urge and the the like, oh, I don't want people, I feel disgusted, don't touch me, you know, all of the stuff that's coming up for you, that's how we can kind of mitigate that is by doing that work and healing from that, okay? And then the second component of this is that whole abuse factor and the trauma response, that feeling like you're disgusting and um, and that touching, you know, would be bad for them. You're like protecting them essentially. And I would encourage you to talk about this in therapy because there's a huge piece to this where our trauma response, somewhere in there, we believe that because this has happened to us, something's wrong. It's the shame response. Something's now wrong with us. We're broken in some way. We're disgusted. We're too much. We, we're not okay for other people to be around. Like we, something's wrong with us, right? And that's that belief. And we have to challenge that. And I know it. that's like, I'm saying we have to challenge that. Oh, perfect, Katie. I'll do that right away. Presto fixo. No, but processing through the abuse will, will help us move through that, understand where it's coming from, check our facts, challenge it with some bridge statements and move us closer because this is a firmly held false belief from childhood. And so it's going to take us a minute to push our way out. But trust me when I tell you that you can. Okay, let's move on to question number four. And question number four says, hey, Katie, I'm wondering how I can honor and validate my boyfriend's feelings even when they trigger me. I grew up in an emotionally neglectful and abusive environment where I was always walking on eggshells. As soon as I realized my mom uh, realized that my mom's tells was that she was in a bad mood, I went into panic mode and figured out how to escape her presence. Now I'm 22 and I'm in a very healthy relationship, but my boyfriend is grumpy as everyone gets. I immediately feel threatened, even though he is my safe person. Externally, I get quiet. I go blank faced. Internally, I get mad at him for making grumpy comments about others and other life annoyances, and I begin to minimize his experience. It's like I feel as though it's all targeted at me, even though none of it is. 
I feel a desperate need to put AirPods in and escape. I sometimes start crying, which he always notices and then apologizes and then internalizes what he was outwardly expressing. This most recent time, he almost lashed out and I told him I couldn't take it and he needs to stop being grumpy. I feel like I might explode. Why do I respond this way? How can I validate him when triggered without minimizing him out of self-preservation? And why do I feel so threatened? I hate being so sensitive that I can't let him be in a bad mood. Okay. What we have here is trauma response meets regular life scenario. And what happens when we've been traumatized is we become incredibly sensitive. So one of the key symptoms or key diagnostic criteria of post-traumatic stress disorder, otherwise known as PTSD, is the avoidance of situations, emotional, physical, whatever, that remind us of the past trauma. Now, you were traumatized as a kid. Your mom was abusive, emotionally neglectful. You were walking on eggshells constantly. So it became part of your ability to survive as a way of reading if she was going to be upset and then avoiding. And that was the only way that you, in fight, flight, freeze, you flight. You got the fuck out. You're like, ah, right? So when your, bro- when your boyfriend gets a little grumpy, is a little upset, it immediately triggers that like, oh my God, I can read it. I can sense it. Uh, and you want to get out. But you know that that's not the healthiest. And that's why you want to put your AirPods in and escape because that's what you did as a kid. So we're just repeating this behavior. So the best way for us to do, to work on this, to improve is to get into therapy and start processing through that trauma we sustained as a child. This might be, there might be some inner child work that's part of that. I have my workshop if you're interested. Um, but it might be EMDR, it might be, you know, somatic experiencing, it might be basic talk therapy with the trauma informed or trauma specialist. But any of those things are going to help with this because again, what's happening is you're confronted with, like you said, regular life stuff. People get grumpy, people get annoyed. In fact, people fight with their significant others and things are okay. You haven't had that experience. Fighting someone being grumpy means you're going to get harmed. So of course we we are like, ugh, we cannot tolerate it. You feel like you might explode because it's too it's too scary, it's too dangerous. And you're already probably hypervigilant because of your PTSD. And so working through that, if you can communicate that to your boyfriend, I think that'd be amazing. He probably already kind of understands that something's there. I would assume you've kind of told him a little bit, but if you can share a little bit more and say, you know, I think this is why it's happening, I'm gonna try my best to work on this. We can start journaling at the very least if you can't afford therapy right now. Journaling about our experience as a kid. You can down, like I said, you can, um, my inner child workshops available on my website, katiemorton.com. You can purchase it there and it's like two, two, two hour chunks of videos, like live streams. Um, and there's worksheets and stuff like that. Also books on Amazon as part of that. Like I said, go to my shop. Um, all of that could be kind of resources that you could pull to help you process. So there's also free online groups through Hope for Recovery. That's Hope, the number four recovery. Um, check those things out because we're going to need to process this through so we can manage because essentially we're already so full. We, we still feel like we're in that traumatizing situation. We've never processed it. Maybe we're still extremely hypervigilant. And so any kind of disruption of our environment where we think, oh, he might be upset or oh, he might be mad, we go right into that trauma response. And of course we do. That was our whole time growing up. We don't really know any better. So show yourself a little love and compassion and patience as we work through it because it can and will get better. Okay. 
Let's move on to question five. Question number five says, hey, Katie, in one of your episodes, you talked about some of your colleagues being judgmental about how you paced yourself getting your credit hours in school. Yes. And wondering why you didn't power through it like them. Will they be bad therapists if they are so judgmental about something as basic as how you want to pursue your education and career and life balance? Thanks. And I love the show. It's an interesting question. And um, I honestly forgot I talked about that, but you are correct. I did have quite a few colleagues that were like, why did you take so long? And shouldn't you just get through it when you can get paid? And yeah, feeling, I guess, I, I don't know if I think about it, because I haven't really thought about it. Could they be bad therapists? They could. I think there's the people that did that, because I even still remember exactly who they were. The people who did that, I think it was more representative of how they treated themselves because my, um, the people that I trust. So, okay, sorry, I'm all over the place because I'm just putting this together on the spot. So one of my favorite quotes or one of my favorite, I don't even know where I got it from. So whoever said it, someone let me know. But one of my favorite life mottos or a quote that I live by is never accept feedback from someone you wouldn't go to for advice. And the reason I say that, and people could be like, but you should accept. No, I don't know them. They don't know me. I wouldn't go to them for help. So why am I allowing them to give me feedback or give me criticism? Why? Right? And that's how I kind of view those colleagues. Like I wouldn't have turned to them for advice anyway, because um, one of my favorite teachers and one of someone who I did turn to for advice, she told me, that she was glad I was taking my time because it's so burnout is too incredibly common in our field as therapists, as psychologists, as mental health professionals as a whole, because she herself was a psychologist. She said, you know, it's so incredibly common. A lot of people who do that end up not even wanting to work in the field because they're burnt out by the time they get their license. And I do know that one of those people never ended up they got their license and then I think they work for a year and now they're doing something. I think they're in real estate. They're doing something totally different because it was, they were burnt out. I would assume, um, again, making judgments. I don't know for sure. I'm making assumptions. I don't have facts to line up with that, but I, um, I think that people who try to put their own stuff onto others could struggle as a therapist. But the thing that's kind of weird about therapists and mental health professionals is the, some people's ability to compartmentalize like their own life and the way they interact with people in real life and how they interact with people in therapist life. They have like these two separate chunks. And I will be honest that therapist Katie in session with a patient is different than the Katie that you see online because this is different, right? I'm not, I'm actually talking a lot. Usually I don't talk much at all, right? It's just a different dynamic. You're you're not my patient sitting in my office and I'm not reading, you know, through whatever your intake assessment, you know, it's just different. And so I would hope that these people, even though they were judgmental and were like, how come you're, ta- you're taking so long, blah, 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 um, kind of telling me I should have hurried. I would hope that first of all, we were young. So hopefully they grew up. Second of all, I'd hope that they are a better therapist than that. And I, I think it just shows more about like their own judgments of themselves and the reason that they rushed just because they felt like what time's a tick and get this together. You know, why are you not doing more, 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 more? Um, and they would definitely burn out. So those are kind of my concerns. I don't think it's necessarily like judgmental in real life equals a bad therapist, but I do feel like 
the best therapists are the ones that are doing their own work on themselves too. And so hopefully they're in therapy also. I lucked out, first of all, I've been in therapy anyway, but I also wanted my practicum when I was an intern and starting to gain my hours. When that was happening, it was a requirement at the place I interned that I had to be in therapy too. And I'm always grateful for that because I wasn't in it at the time. I'd been in it and then I'd stopped, I think in the summer before grad school, um, and then I got back in because they required it. And I was like, perfect. What a good excuse, right? To start it up again. And that honestly made, you know, I was in therapy. It was perfect timing because my dad had started to get sick and he ended up passing away after my first year of grad school. And so I'd already had that relationship established and that, you know, it was any, it was good timing. But anyway, enough about that. I hope that that kind of answers your question. I think there, I think it could go either way. Hopefully they've become better people and therefore better therapists along the way. Moving on to question number six. This question is, hey, Katie, I've asked this question so many times. Well, hey, today's your lucky day. Sometimes you just got to keep asking. I really want your advice. I've had anorexia since I was 13. I'm now 40. I have a seven-year-old daughter, and I never want to have her go through this too. And I want to know how I should talk to her about this. Because even though she hasn't asked yet, she has seen some eating disorder behaviors from me. And I want a way to talk to her about it that will be understanding and help stop it happen from happening to her too. She is my whole heart, and the thought of her going through an eating disorder scares me. I just don't know how to talk to her about it. Okay, a couple of things. And the first thing you can do, and I know you saw this coming, is to work on yourself. I know that's a shitty answer, but it's the truth because children pick up on our behaviors, whether we want them to or not. Okay. So please work on your recovery. I hope you have a therapist you can talk to, someone you can process it through with, figure out where it's coming from, all the things. Okay. When it comes to children, and this always comes as a shock to people when I say it, but we have to, I want you all to understand and accept that they know way more than we want to admit that they know. And this whole like, oh, keep it down. Don't tell the children. Don't upset the children. We don't want the kids to know that this is going on. They already know. I think all of us out there, if your parents ever argued, we knew they were going to get divorced before they got divorced, right? We always know. We live in the house with you. Don't pretend you can, like, well, what are you talking about? And I hear this from all of my patients, adult patients who are like, oh yeah, I think I started with anxiety. You know, when my, I would ask my parents what was wrong because I hear them fighting and they say nothing, go to bed. Now I'm not saying we have to let our children in on every nitty gritty detail because they can't emotionally, developmentally handle that. However, we need to be honest with them. And so if your seven-year-old daughter is seeing you use behaviors, we need to talk about this. And we need to talk about it in a way that we think a seven-year-old brain could handle it. And my estimation at a seven-year-old girl, you could probably, let's just call her Lucy. Um, we could say like, hey, Lucy, you know, um, I know mom, you know, your mom, she acts weird around food. I'm trying to do my best. I've always struggled with this. I want you to know that this is mine and it comes from this place. It, tell her as much as you can about it. I've always struggled with, call, you could even give it a name. You can call it anorexia. You can't catch an eating disorder, you guys. You can't catch a mental illness. Okay. I know that's hard for people to understand. It's okay to talk honestly and earnestly to our children about things like this. I know people are like, oh, but it's serious. The more, then even more so we need to talk about it. You know, your mom, I've had anorexia since I was like 13. And so eating certain foods is really hard for me. And so this is where you can connect with her and make it a, a thing. We're going to try, I'm going to work on this. And I want you to know that you get to eat whatever you want. This is mama's problem. 
this is something I got to work on because I struggle with that. You know, explain it to her, make it make sense. Otherwise, she's going to think it's something she is doing. She's going to try to make sense with what she has. Kids always put themselves into the scenario because that's the only thing they know. And if we don't give them all the information, they're not going to be able to pull themselves out of it and understand that it's actually about you. Does that make sense what I'm saying? And so you can tell her, you can don't have to call it anorexia if you don't want. You can call it an eating disorder. I would encourage you to use real terms. We don't need to call it something weird and give it a funny name, but we can just say, you know, mama has this nasty voice in her head that tells her she can't eat. And I know that I can, but it's just a battle. And you can even say, like, make it relatable. So she's seven, be like, you know, like bullies at school, people who are like hurtful. That's what's going on in mom's head. And I hate it. And I'm doing my best. But that's why sometimes I act a little weird. Like I would call out your own behavior. I know you know what it is. All of my eating disorder patients know what it is. We try to pretend that we don't. That's how I would talk to her about it. Yes, I know it's uncomfortable. I just want you to know that it's uncomfortable for you, but not for her. Because she she's knowing this is going on and she doesn't understand. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So we need to put some language to it. Be honest. I know people get scared and think, oh, can't tell children. It's better that we talk about it. Otherwise, she's going to pick up on it and think like, oh, but girls don't eat. Mom, mama doesn't eat that. I can't eat that. Or this is the way that mommy should start picking up on your behaviors. Trust me, I've seen it. I'm not doing that to like scare you. It's not a scare tactic. We know this, right? But we, so we need to communicate about it in a real way. And talking about like relationship between food and your bodies and, and how important it is and you know, um, I would encourage you to read the uh, Eating in the Light of the Moon if you haven't. It's a great book. It's in my Amazon shop. Um, it's one of my favorite books. But anyway, you could even read some of that stuff with your daughter. I think they're beautiful little stories. Kids would love it. It's kind of like some of it's not fairy tales, but it, it's it's out there in kid land a little bit, but it's beautiful. Anyway, that's how I would start talking about it. You don't have to worry about the language that you use as much as you think. You just need to be honest and let her know that it's not her fault. And I wouldn't even, I don't think you have to tell her it's not her fault. You can, you can be that direct. There's no harm in that. But I think I would just say like, this comes from mama's childhood. When I was 13, this started and it's been horrible. Be honest about it. You have this nasty voice. It's a bully. It's an asshole. I mean, don't say that. Maybe you do. It's up to you. You're the parent. Um, Yeah. And, and keep talking. Again, don't think another important key point when it comes to talking to children or anybody in our lives, when we're having a difficult conversation that we know needs to be had and we don't really know how to start it, don't think that it's only one conversation. This is an ongoing conversation. I would encourage you strongly to tell your daughter, you know, you can ask mom about it anytime. If you have any questions or you think I'm being weird, you don't have to hide that from me. You can ask me. 
right? Because then she can say, but why are we doing this? Is this some of this stuff? You know, it might be a good challenge for you too, for your eating disorder so you can fight back. You got this. Get some support. Be honest. It will get better. Okay. Let's move on to question number seven. This question says, hey, Katie, is it normal for a child prepubescent to masturbate while thinking about being punished? Or is this related to sexual trauma? I have a history of verbal and emotional abuse and neglect, but as far as I can remember, no sexual abuse. But I'm wondering if an urge like this from a young age could be an indication of some repressed trauma. I'm also terrified of men and physical and sexual intimacy. I freeze and I shake, which I also consider suspicious, you and me both. But then this could just be because of the emotional and verbal abuse. It could. We'll talk about this. The idea of bringing this up with my therapist makes me feel sick. So I'm asking here to gauge your response first. Of course, happy to happy to do that. Thanks heaps in advance. Now, for a prepubescent child to master, children are curious. I don't want anybody out there to be judgmental about general curiosity as a child. But it's a very suspicious thing to masturbate while thinking about being punished. That connection shouldn't, in my mind, I don't think that's a normal developmental connection to have made. Now, children can masturbate prepubescently without really realizing it. Um, yeah, children, it, again, natural curiosity of our bodies and the way that they respond. That's just how it is. It's no judgments there. But this being punished connection I'm suspicious of trauma too, just like you. And you said um, you don't recall any sexual abuse. It doesn't necessarily have to be directed to sexual abuse. It could be something, you know, the punishment could be part of it. Um, but the fact that you're terrified of men and physical and sexual is very suspicious. Again, the freezing and the shaking, it can be normal to be kind of like, oh, I'm not ready. I don't know about religious background. I always want to throw that in there because there can be some religious trauma or like belief systems around intimacy and sexuality where religion tells us it's not okay. So we can become terrified of it. Like I've told this story many times, but uh, a girl that I knew in church, she was super, super strictly, I mean, her, her father was like, part of the pastoral group within that church, a huge mega church in my area. And she got married and could never have sex. It like hurt her. She was so, she thought it was like dirty and bad and all the things that were kind of told to keep us like clean and safe and all that fucking bullshit, that religious trauma, you know, made it so that she couldn't have a healthy, happy sex life as a consenting adult in a marriage. Um, it ruined her marriage. And so, I throw that out there so that people can, you know, assess if that's kind of part of it too, because that could be part of this. Um, but I'm I'm suspicious also. And I think it's something worth, even though I know this makes you really uncomfortable, like you said, it makes you feel sick, but it's something worth exploring at a pace that feels okay for you. Nobody has to have answers right away. We just have to be curious. We have to dig in. Where is this? When did this start? What does it feel like? You know, wh- how does this apply are we terrified of women as well? Is it just men? Hmm. What men were in our life growing up? Were any of them a little scary and like maybe hugged us too long? Like there can be all sorts of instances that could have been distressing. We have to be, we have to consider them. We have to think about them. What are the messages we received as a kid? Because it could be from trauma, sexual trauma, abuse. It could not be. It could be other things. We need to, again, we're not jumping to any conclusions. We're just going to be a detective about it until we learn enough to where we feel like we can decide for ourselves what took place, what happened, why, why does this, why do we feel this way, right? But I know it's uncomfortable. Take your time with it. I encourage you so strongly to journal 
And in your journal periodically, when you find yourself being like, oh, something's wrong with me. This is so gross. Why would I think this way? I want you to write, you know, this is not my fault. Something might have happened to me and I need to figure out what. Okay, just keep telling yourself nothing's wrong with you. You're just being a detective. We're just trying to sort it. Someone possibly did something. That's not something we chose. We didn't, can, we can't consent. You know, just remind yourself of those things. Because I know it can be really hard. And we can have a lot of embarrassment, shame, guilt, all that stuff. Okay. Okay, final question. Question number eight says, how can you tell if your mom was and still is emotionally, emotionally neglectful and or abusive? I'll tell you how, but we're going to, we have a little background here. I've watched your videos about childhood emotional neglect extensively and can relate to nearly all the telltale signs. That means it's happening or happened to you. However, I can't seem to distinguish if those things are actually true or whether or not I'm trying to make my mom seem worse than she actually is. When anybody ever says this, I always think, I always want to ask this and I ask this in sessions with patients, what would be the benefit? So this is a good question to ask in your journal. What would be the benefit of making your mom seem worse than she actually is? What would you get out of that? Think about it. Be honest with yourself. Because and from my perspective, there's never a reason that we'd want our parents to look like assholes or abusers or emotionally neglectful. There's no benefit there. What we get to say that that's why we're hypervigilant because we have a trauma response. I don't, where's, where's the positive? I just don't see it. Okay. But think about it. For context, I do love my mom. I think I always have. Of course, she's your mom. But lately, I'm beginning to question everything about her. My early childhood as an only child before my brother was born when I was five age, when I was aged five, I was fairly mundane from what I can remember. But I can vividly remember her pushing me off of her on occasion, leaving me screaming and crying for her attention. Ooh. But when my brother was born, things changed. He got all the attention. And I understand babies are cute and all, but this constant attention has lasted throughout his entire life. He's nearly 12 and I'm now 17. Whenever I slightly step out of line, I get shunned. I get no love, no attention, and I get spoken to in such a condescending manner that I feel worthless. That's abuse right there. After days of being pushed away and ignored while my brother is showered with love, she expects me to rebound and feel love towards her and just be completely fine or else things just escalate. More to the point, when I revealed to my parents that I was sexually abused by my uncle for eight years, she made it all about her and went and told all of her friends just how difficult it was and still is for her. She seems to use it merely as a ploy to garner sympathy from others. Is your mom a narcissist? This sounds very narcissistic. In the two years since coming out with my story, she has continually made me feel bad, blamed me, told me to forget what happened and move on with my life. Wow. I'm in therapy, by the way. Good. Before you ask, I was going to ask. Am I overreacting like my mom always says about her reactions? Is she even emotionally abusive and neglectful or am I the problem? Sorry for the long question. That's okay. You are not the problem. Your mom is abusive and a horrible mother to be honest, and clearly has her own issues. Something about you being a girl was maybe triggering for her. Maybe she has abuse in her past. I'm not condoning her behavior. I'm just trying to maybe give some color to like why she's such a, an asshole. Um, but your mom was super emotionally abusive, abusive, neglectful. Neglect is abuse. Your mom is abusive and you've been abused for most of your life. Um, I'm so sorry this is happening. And also that like gaslighting type of thing that she's doing, like telling you it's not that bad and telling you should move on. And that's what's causing you to question your own. Also, the fact that abuse makes us think something's wrong with us, that shame, 
kind of experience, then we think that we're broken and we're the problem. When in fact, your mom is the problem. And if you had received the affection, the consistent affection and attention that your brother has received, you'd be in a totally different place right now. And um, also being abused by your uncle for eight years and her making it about her. Again, that's just not appropriate and that's not okay. And I'm glad you're in therapy. I would keep talking about this, um, but you're not making it into more than it was. It was and is and possibly still is because you said you're 17. I'm assuming you still live at home. It's still abusive. And so my encouragement for you, keep stay in therapy and find a way to get out of that house as soon as possible in a very safe manner. You know, save up your money, find a roommate, go to college, get out of there um, because it's it's only doing you more harm the longer you stay. And then from there, once you moved out, we can probably do more trauma healing because it's hard when you're currently being abused. Um, but we can work more on that. And then we can decide what kind of relationship, if any, we decide to have with our mom, right? We get to actually decide. I keep using that word decide because you get to make that decision. It's really important. It's really powerful um, because finally you get to protect yourself in a way, you know, however you see that fit. You can, like I said, you can have a relationship. You can not anything in between. I just want you to feel like you can place boundaries and uphold them and you get to choose who's in your life and who's not. Okay. I'm so sorry you had to go through that. And yes, it is abuse, just in case you need to hear it one more time. Thank you all so much for sending in your questions. Thank you for sharing this podcast with people. Thank you for everything. Check out, uh, like I said, my Amazon shop has books that I've mentioned. There's my Patreon page if you're looking for more support and more connection with the community. Have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your week. Do your homework and I'll see you next time. Bye.